You are listening to Lightning Strikes Thrice, the JRPG Games Club podcast that's hot, wet, and sassy. This is Season 6, Episode 4, covering Cathedral Ship in Xenosaga Episode 1 for the PS2. I'm your host, Chris Taylor. My pronouns are he, him. With me today is... My name is Fletcher Gump, and I'm male, and I am actually very fond of what you are saying now, Mr. Rogan. That is good advice. Jesus. <laughs> um... <laughs> My name's Ryan Beatty. My pronouns are they, them. My name is Michael. My pronouns he, him. And I didn't program you that way, Fletcher. <laughs> I'll have you know that I am history now. I am the boomer <laughs> elemental. <laughs> God. Great. What happened last time? Last time we met the little master, Junior, as he started chasing down the trail of the Zohar emulator and Utic while the rest of our party were sucked inside the planet-sized Gnosis Cathedral Ship, where we pick up this week. Perfect. Uh, Cathedral Ship is, depending on who you ask, the worst dungeon in Xenosaga 1, or the worst dungeon in Xenosaga, period. So I figured if anyone else had uh, a two-minute hate about this place, let's just get it all out up top before we discuss the events of the place. I will go first, because I wrote the notes, and thus that means I get to have dibs on so many things. Everything here looks identical with shades of dimly lit meat wall. A mass of the place has narrow quarters, which are possibly impossible to dodge enemies in. Basically, every encounter combo in this place is some form of miserable between HP sponges, guys who debuff your attack, and the fact that you are making no money whatsoever in this dungeon because it's all gnosis. You make a lot of money! A bunch of those dudes drop barter items. It's the guy that yeah. you fight the most, like the little fairy guys. They drop barter items worth a lot. Not so much that you're going to be getting any good eggs parts when you come out of this dungeon. You're still pretty cash strapped, especially if you use healing items. Yeah, that's how I got ducked my first time playing this game. I was healing so much in this dungeon that I ran out of money to buy more healing items and couldn't beat the boss. See, it's not just a thing I'm making up. I believe you, but I also have the option of pushing the turbo button and running an old dungeon in 20 minutes and calling it good. <laughs> yeah, I, I basically think that if you finish an entire dungeon and then you have to go grind another one for rewards, something is wrong with the dungeon structure. Well, I have not done anything after we left this dungeon, so I will find out. I did finally use all my 99 medkit S's, though. Hmm. The thing about it, though, is like all of the problems with this dungeon aren't are in no way unique to this dungeon. Those yeah. are just every dungeon in this game. And so I think that this is, among all of them, the least worst because all of those things get worse later in the game. And I like this game still. So, um, yeah, I think this is fine. Yeah, I, I want to let Fletcher finish, but I also have some counterpoints to say about this dungeon. Yeah, I only have a couple more things. Um, the incredibly large nature of the place lends itself to you walking onto a new screen, discovering you're in the wrong place or at a dead end, and then you have to walk back through the prior screen where all the enemies have respawned because you went on and off. Save points are very few and far between, to the point that in the first time I played this game and the first replay I did of it this year, I got to the point where I was unknowingly one screen before the next save point and backtracked all the way to where you crashed because I was like, oh God, there's still no save point. Okay, I gotta get, I gotta stop. Oh no. Yeah. 
if you're playing this like normal speed, it's like an hour to an hour and a half between save points. Oh my god. Yeah. 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 Um so okay, yes, but I remember I remember hating this dungeon. I remember it thinking that it took up like a full fourth of the game uh, and that it just totally destroyed all forward progress and everything. But upon replay, I actually really liked this dungeon, uh, including the look of it instead of dimly lit meat wall. It looked to me like a Google deep dream version of Zen from Half-Life. And the, the dungeon has lots of places where it shows you things to explore before showing you how you can get there, which is one of my favorite kinds of dungeon design. Uh, I will concede that it is very annoying to travel long, long distances only to realize that you were going the right way. And so you have to backtrack to discover all the goodies or go back to a save point or whatever. That does suck. But uh, dungeon overall, good in my opinion. Everyone likes the clown on Naughty Dog for the yellow ledges, but they are the first people to really clearly point out to me, this is the right way. So go all these other ways to explore for tre treasure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this... This dungeon does have like a really good sense of ecology to it. Mm -hmm. Like it it does actually kind of feel like this is a city or a, a civilization that's been eaten up by this giant thing. There's like little scraps of it throughout. It also has like a good use of like uh, different layers and levels of it. And you move up and down a lot, which I really like. like. It's not just like a bunch of hallways. It has verticality to it, which I found really interesting. And... I agree. I think this dungeon looked great. I think the art design here is really good. Um, it It's really trippy, and there's, like, this uh, transparent, like, red mesh that, like, floats over things that's yes. really cool looking for a PS2 game. Yeah. That just adds a lot. It's very resy. It's very yeah. resy. Also very, like, early 90s PC vector screensaver. Yeah. I will absolutely fight you on the res thing as a super fan of that. I do not get res vibes off this dungeon. Well, they're talking specifically about the um, the red wireframe overlay that kind of floats in the air around things. That's what the, we're saying is resy. Yeah. I have the dungeon ecology, the fact that it feels like a, a commercial area that was swallowed by a planet, also uh, pointed out in my notes. So Also that incredible billboard. Oh, Ooh. yeah. Oh, yeah. I have that called out in the notes, too. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I had a really good time with this, and it was like a pleasant, breezy two hours. I would probably like it less if I was not just on turbo mode the whole time, which feels very necessary for this dungeon, particularly that part where you go like a mile down a highway. Yeah, uh, I will say that my first time playing this game before I replayed it for the show, I did have distinctly negative memories of this dungeon uh, because not only is it where it got stuck, I remember it being brutal and insanely difficult. Um, and the second time I played it with a walkthrough, so that probably solved some of it. Mm. But overall, I think it's like passable as far as JRPG dungeons go. I think the thing I like about it is because I, I like to overly focus on like mechanics of things. What I really like about this is that this is like the mechanical turning point where you go from yeah. having a bunch of new characters to like starting to have like a defined party where you're beginning to specialize into roles. Yeah. And yeah. that is really enjoyable to me. And the dungeon is long enough that you can actually feel like the arc of your party power bending to be stronger and stronger because you fight like the same four guys a lot. And you just start like, oh, I dunk this guy in like three hits instead of six now. Right. Yeah. 
and this game has so many like crunchy systems and this dungeon has a part that uh kind of tests all of them like you're kind of forced to use the skill system mm -hmm. you're kind of forced to like level up all of your techs mm -hmm. forced to like trade techs between people and stuff like that so i think it's kind of elegant in a way because it forces you to engage with all this like really crunchy depth that exists in this game that you would never kind of look into otherwise because it is kind of intimidating I will point out that I already mechanically broke it this episode. <laughs> yep. I am nodding and snapping my fingers right now. I'm like, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. All of these things, yes. Also, a thing that occurs to me, Chris, is that if you're playing at turbo speed, some of the worst encounters in this place are way more bearable. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, the one with, like, there's, like, eight guys, I bet you that takes, like, two minutes for them to get through all their moves. That yeah. I yeah, there's that. There's the guys who can sleep the party, which means oh. you might be a minute between turns. There's oh my God. the guys who just defend down into meat walls and it's just like plinking at them for a few damage until one of them decides to leave himself open. Yes, but if you have enough skill points to extract the sleep guard skill from some armor and also the poison guard skill from some armor, you can just uh, blaze right through. Yep. Oh, eventually yeah the problem being you have to be like skill level two i think to extract that and the game like never really explains what skill level is or how to level it up like the whole skill system in this game is incredibly poorly explained and also oh, yeah. very necessary yeah all of the crunch in this game is terribly signaled but i love all of it now that i have dug into it yeah on with the show the party going through this dungeon eventually comes upon a sign which A, has merged with the Gnosis's flesh, and B, clearly says in English that it came from Ariadne. I just have to say, I think it's really dumb to point out things like this, but when it calls attention to it, it's kind of dumb that the entire known universe speaks the same language, uh, as far as we know, and it's just weird. The sign I find very funny. Mm -hmm. So do you want a minor universe spoiler? Yeah. Yes. There is a second language spoken in the Xenosaga series. Ooh. It's Latin. Oh my fucking God. Are you serious? <laughs> I am. That's pretentious as fuck. <laughs> you know, there's a space pope, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> Love interstellar spapists. Yep. <laughs> language was a mistake, guys. Yeah, God thought so too. <laughs> God did his best to slow down the invention of podcasts, but. <laughs> Nevertheless, we persisted. <laughs> Time for another Cheyenne flashback. Woo. Yeah, before they can investigate what is the opening of a mall, Xion sees Nephilim telling her to help him and decides to hide this from her friends. But elsewhere, Cherenkov is wandering around and we start having the first of the scenes they cut out of the DS remake. What? What? Okay, so... Remember how I said that they moved the Ziggy dungeon to make it an optional thing you could do later? Uh -huh. This uh -huh. whole sequence with all of Cherenkov's flashbacks is removed from this segment, and you can similarly play it and watch it later. But why would you introduce Virgil earlier when Virgil matters much less than Cherenkov? Uh, you'll see. Also, is Cherenkov still the, like, big bad of this dungeon, effectively, in the DS? Yes, 
you're just not seeing him wandering around interrupting your own quest. It's not even that, though. Just trying to find him in this dungeon would make absolutely no sense if we had no idea of how he ties into, like, the broader story of this world. So this scene, like, the pacing of it is awful, but it's kind of necessary. So here's how they do it in that game. You don't see him during the dungeon, and he reemerges when he's about to confront you in front of the Zohar, and he's like, oh, you think you're going to make it out alive? We're all going to die here. And then you do the boss fight. That proceeds as normal. And after Xion has the link with him at the end, that's when you can view his memories and get the scene. And, like, if you want to dig into his story, you can. Uh. So, yeah, these flashbacks that are not in the DS version are flashbacks to Cherenkov's extremely fucked past. Um, so he is on trial for a violent crime, and his defense lawyer gets him off. Uh, so his punishment is that he only gets level 7 personality reconditioning. Uh, so in effect, his mind is wiped, and a more agreeable personality is installed over it. Oh my god, this cutscene is so funny. Oh my god, where do I start? First of all, is this the first time we hear about personality reconditioning? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, the name of it is so on the nose. It's amazing. And there's seven levels, but this is what I would describe as personality reconditioning. So what are the other lower levels? We don't know what that means. The lawyer in this cutscene is awful. It's so funny. She's just basically like, yeah, my client's awful. Like, terrible, total fuck up of a human. Real bad. Pretty please. Can we be nice to him? And then the judge... There's no pause. There's no consideration. Just immediately, like, issues his verdict, which uh, makes it seem like what the lawyer said had no effect on the judge's verdict and decision at all. It's just amazing. There's, like, an error with Cherenkov's texture, and he's supposed to be black, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Also, if you want to know what earlier levels of personality reconditioning are like, go watch A Clockwork Orange. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So years later, he has uh, married his lawyer, and we get a scene from their relationship where she just openly taunts him, explaining to him that this marriage was just so she could get a self-cloning permit, and that, lol, no, I don't want to have kids with you. Your DNA is a colossal fuck-up. You really want that to live on? Just, (laughs) yikes. (laughs) The final straw is when uh, she throws a BR device at him. She says, I could get all the love I need with this. Then he stomps on it and kills her. Uh, Which is like such a boomer mood. Just be like, my my horrible wife. (laughs) Fucking kill her. And then he does. Okay, so to be fair to Cherenkov, um, I don't know. This made me, this scene made me very sad because yes, he is a violent shit ass who murders, but also he is constantly being used and neglected and shit on by other assholes. Like his lawyer wife fucking sucks. She doesn't deserve to be murdered. I'm not saying that, but she sucks. Well, the consequences of this murder are that he is um, sentenced to level eight personality reconditioning, which I find extremely funny. Yeah. They're just in numerical yeah. order. This is a new layer. You can tell it's worse because eight is bigger than seven. That's where this society is at. We have to go deeper. <laughs> <laughs> at this point, he will no longer have rights as a human, is now a life form belonging to the Federation with rights equivalent to a Realian, which uh, says a lot about the rights of Realians also. Yeah. Big yikes, y'all. Big fucking yikes. 
I mean, they get more context to the scene we saw previously where he was on the bridge and stared meaningfully at the girl. That girl, it turned out to be the clone of his dead lawyer wife. What? He stops her to talk to her. He stands right in front of her and just looks at her and she just immediately calls him garbage like she's my child. <laughs> All we get is a scream and he's lifting her up by her neck until she's dead. The Federations decide that this time, since he has such a stubborn neural network, clearly they should use him as a test subject for level nine. Uh, we do not see what that entails, but it goes so horrendously wrong that we learn he has murdered everyone in the facility and three squads of special forces soldiers. This cutscene is such techno babble garbage. I love it. Yeah, it's pretty good. They give you just enough definition that you can fill it all in in a way that's very satisfying. Yeah, uh, yeah totally. So do we think that Cherenkov's character is the game trying to say something about people's innate self overall and everyone's inability to change? Or is this kind of violent man stays violent storyline specific to Cherenkov's character for reasons we'll learn about later in this episode? I think the game is trying to have it both ways because of the Cherenkov cutscene we see later. I think that this game has no idea what it's trying to say about Cherenkov, but it wants to say something meaningful. Uh, I will disagree. I think Cherenkov is another branch of showing you what a horror the Life Recycling Act was as a piece of legislation. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And that it's not just, oh, yeah, only realians were affected by this. It's a racism metaphor. It's no, we wrote a horrendous piece of legislation that ends up meaning human life is disposable in so many ways, and we're just now cleaning that up in the galaxy. This is basically galactic reconstruction. Right, I understand and I agree, but I'm saying thematically, this is very confused because of the cutscene we see later, which we'll, we'll talk about then. It, okay. it doesn't know what it thinks the source of violence is, it just thinks that the act is bad. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll discuss this with you later, because I, I have a counterpoint to that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because I, I like both reads there, honestly. I like both of your reads. And I think part of my read on this and what will happen comes in where I wrote that Margulis finds him and gives him the Jordan Peterson special. <laughs> <laughs> Reality is cruel, is it not? Uh uh, Margulis is very much here with some UTIC guys. They arrive at this facility and he's just like, oh, you, the man in pajamas, you're the one who killed everything living in a two mile radius. Cool. Now show me the proof of your existence. And we cut away. Yeah. He says, show me the proof of your existence to me alone. The second part, not necessary there, Margulis. Uh, <laughs> I also called... Uh, out the show me the proof of your existence line because uh, Margulis clearly loves to manipulate weak people at their most vulnerable into doing his will. At least it comes around to bite him in the hilarious way. So uh, just a quick question before we get started and talk about the dungeon. Who did you guys use for this dungeon? Because now you have a bunch of people you can use. I mainly stuck with Xion, Chaos, and, and Ziggy, but Ziggy sucks, so I switched him out for Cosmos. Yeah, I mained Xion, Chaos, and Cosmos the whole dungeon. Uh, so it's, you know, the two canonical eggs users, and also Cosmos, the Gnosis Destroyer. Yeah. Uh, I had the same party, but because I'm a sicko, and I noticed that uh, all of Cosmos's skills were very expensive, I had been feeding her every skill-up item in the game, <laughs> and uh, unlocked Satellite at the beginning of this dungeon. <laughs> 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 which is extremely like 350 points of damage every turn yeah. and uh 
I had the ether to use it because I had like 50 ether packs because I hadn't been using ether for healing because I bought all those cheap ass med kits. Well done. Yeah. So just blew through everything. Did not even use the eggs until the last battle. <laughs> Your game is weirdly asymmetrical right now compared to someone who's coming in on this blind. Yeah. The problem with this game is that the difficulty highly depends on how much you already know about it. It's so variable. I have forgotten everything about this game and remember nothing about it. I feel like you got some instincts there, bro. <laughs> so the enemies in this area suck. Um, they they come in big packs. Um, so you're going to get a lot of use out of your eggs. Uh, hopefully you brought a non-beam weapon thing that targets AoE uh, because they can come in packs of five and put you to sleep and make your frame rate shit itself. Um, instead, what I did was I had the uh, boost spell for Xion, and so I just kept casting it on Cosmos. As Every time Xion's turn came up, I would just give Cosmos another boost, and that worked out pretty well. I just kind of numbers through it because I still had all those med kits. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like our blade would kill one of these guys. And then if chaos critted, he would kill another one himself. Otherwise he and Xion would take them out. So we just kind of like numbers them to death and then spammed a bunch of med kits afterwards. Word. I definitely had the hardest time initially with those the first encounters, actually, those wolves that do a gajillion yeah. damage and have a gajillion hit points. Yeah. And then they never come up again. But boy, is that a rough introduction? Mm -hmm. Hey, if you're doing that thing I talked about where you backtrack to the first save point, they come up a couple more times. <laughs> One thing I do want to say is that you can avoid most of the encounters in this area if you walk. It's possible. I don't think all of them are unavoidable. I think there's a couple of corridors in this place that you literally can't get around the enemies in. Yeah, yeah but I would say like 80% of them are avoidable in some way. Yo, that Will-O-Wisp attack looks so cool. Yeah, it does. Great. It is a waste of a cool spell animation on some nerd you're never going to fight again. <laughs> I also thought that. I was like, how much work was put into this fucking... Because it's, it's really cool and has like a bunch of effects on top of each other and you never see it again. Yeah, yeah, it's like looking at the um, Zemdis laser sphere from the outside, but it's also like uh, the Final Fantasy X Holy kind of. Yeah. So between our last two recording sessions, a oral history of Monolith Soft came out through Kotaku's reporters. And how much effort was put into this for nearly no purpose is basically the story of the company through the Namco Bandai years, in their own words. You can tell. <laughs> yeah, Takahashi really does not seem like a very efficient project manager, just between Xenogears and then the Xenosaga games. And then Xenoblade, where they introduced a million side quests that are completely pointless. So he says that working with Nintendo as their boss breathing down their neck really made them learn a lot of new things because they could talk to those veterans. That makes sense. That makes sense. But Bandai Namco was not giving them that sort of thing. They were giving them deadlines and hands off. Right. Yeah. That seems great. I like that. I love that all of the dumbest things in the world have a ton of detail because that's the kind of thing that goes really far in a JRPG. Yeah, but you also get things like this dungeon where like it's just long swaths of like pathways that lead to more pathways that lead to like stairs to another pathway. Yeah, but that makes it feel like a place. Yeah, it does. There's a middle ground. Like the problem with this dungeon is like we're going to describe it in however long. And it feels way longer because you keep having to like wind back through 
the same areas. Like you'll leave a screen, go onto the new screen, find a different exit that takes you back to the screen you were just on, on, on like a different path and stuff like that. It really feels small, but it's very long. Like if you laid out the, mm-hmm. the hallways end to end, it's very, very big. See, all that shit is my shit. All that shit is my shit. Whenever I emerge and I was like, oh, I know where I am, but in a different spot, I would like gasp and then say that out loud, even though the only other living creature in my apartment is my cat and she doesn't know words. I don't like a middle ground for spaces. I either want them to be like small and really well designed, like a Demon Souls level or extremely maximalist, which is what this is. Yeah, I was going to say there's at least two screens in this dungeon coming to mind that are just long, open paths with no encounters. Yeah, and then you just look at cool background shit and wonder about it. One of them is just nothing but a blank white room. Look, that's the one where you do all your menus. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So this first exploration is pretty nondescript. You can, like, knock down a bridge, fight a mini boss that we're going to talk about the the required one here in a bit to get a tune circuit, which, like, is for your eggs, and it's probably not worth it. Sell it. I think it's worth it. Yeah, you can sell it. I would generally say any eggs accessory you can get for minimal pain is worth it if only for cash. Yeah. I sold the BMAC circuit, and that motherfucker was worth, like, three grand. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, I'll probably be able to buy this later, but I need the money now. Mm -hmm. There's only, I think, five items in the game that you cannot get in some form at endgame. So, yeah, that's generally a safe bet. Yeah. And speaking of, like, small numbers of items that are weird, this area also includes one of, like, I think four or five items in the whole game that you can only get by switching your field character. If you have Momo as your field character, which... Why would you be using Momo, much less want to, like, walk around as her? She's in my party. She's terrible. Nope. She can basically become a insane support character, depending on your build. Why not just give Xion, who has way more tanky, all of her ability? Xion's a tanky? <laughs> Xion is definitely a tanky. Definitely. <laughs> Xion would have ridden the fucking tank. <laughs> She's also a lib, though. <laughs> Shit lib tanky. <laughs> Alan is the tank man and she just rolls him over. <laughs> yeah, Xion versus Alan at Tianmen Square. That's a pretty good summary of her politics. Oh my god. Let me pull up there who would win wiki. <laughs> <laughs> so Momo gets like this Starwind transformation that is useful for like one thing that we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Uh, it gives you access to an important item. And then you like move her out of your party and never put her back in because she's useless. I can imagine Momo being very good, but it would require a lot of investment because you'd have to move like offensive magic-based spells like um, Chaos's spells onto her. Yeah, and you would also have to use all of your tech points to make her like have any survivability. You would put her behind Ziggy, right? Because then you have physical Uh, elemental diversity and magical elemental diversity and you can benefit from bodyguard right there's so many enemies in this game that can attack your back line in one way or another and also i feel like a battle system with a three character party having one of those characters be purely support it makes more sense on like a four or five character battle system to me but only having two damage dealers and one support will always feel a little yucky to me 
especially since bosses in this game are like kind of damage rushing because you can't survive super long. And I'm not going to say that Momo is good because even in the hypothetical that I provided, you have to level up chaos a bunch. Then you have to spend a ton of points on Momo, getting nothing for Momo and transferring shit to her. And at that point, like you yeah. could have just been using chaos. <laughs> She's cool in Xenosaga too, where she does good physical damage though. Oh yeah. They revamp her hard. Mm -hmm. uh, my point about the support thing is think of how many bosses in this game have such a damage output or can have such a damage output depending on roles that someone is already spending a turn healing or buffing or using items anyway just have a character built for that okay yeah but Xion can also like give boost to people which is insanely useful uh she can like buff people i think she gets medica all really early there's no reason not to just transfer all of the good stuff that momo can get onto Xion. Yeah, you can heal so much if you have Shion and uh, Chaos between, like, that fucking, like, Dewdrop spell and then Medica all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, like, 400 points a turn of just heals if you needed it. And you will. You will soon. soon let's talk about the only unskippable mini boss in this place perun there are three elemental themed mini bosses in this place we mentioned svarozik a minute ago and this is the electric one who is pretty brutal to robots as a result he's also irritating because he goes boost crazy whenever he likes and as a bonus, fuck you, you're not going to see telegraphed unless you bring out an eggs and thought buying beam weapons would save you money on ammo. This guy absorbs beam for health, as do many enemies in this dungeon. If you stay healed up and maybe don't bring in the robots, this fight is pretty manageable. Otherwise, it can be a pretty rough time. So counterpoint for the no robots, the axes that I equipped uh, onto my eggs absolutely wrecked all of these mini bosses. Like, yeah. 425 damage a slash oh no i mean if you're using the beam cannon like the minigun oh. if you changed over to that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um when i saw perun after fighting uh Sphorosic earlier 
I realized that this was a dungeon where they were trying to give us the JRPG standby of the four elemental guardians. Although I don't think there's an earth one uh, here. There is not. Yeah, so there's only three. Uh, but unfortunately, they're all generic Gnosis model types with the big club arms. So it doesn't feel as hype as it does in other JRPG dungeons where you get to fight the four elemental fiends. And you don't get to fight Susano at the end. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's the other big bummer. Unfortunately, after you clear this mini-boss, some regular encounters in the area begin introducing Hydras. Hydras are enemies who show up en masse and will either block, reducing damage massively, or AoE an entire row for 100-plus damage, which can be a wipe if 2-plus Hydras do it in one round. But, like, Xion's fire spells bypass the block. Yeah, that's true. Yep. Hydras are not the worst thing in this dungeon, that would be the guy one room past the Hydras, which are unicorns, which hilariously, they're one of the only Gnosis enemies in the game that actually looks vaguely like what it says it's supposed to look like, because it does look like a weird, square, deformed unicorn. It looks like Ixion from Final yeah. Fantasy X. Yeah. I, I was just about to say. Almost 100%. Yes, yes. So unicorns have 1,500 HP and also revive the other enemies. They'll be in the back row of any arrangement they're in, so you can't hit them without AoEs or special long-ranged attacks until you kill the other enemies. They will usually be behind meat walls named ogres who can come back to life. Honestly, those fights are fine, though, to yeah. me. Yeah. Because the ogres are weak to, like, spirit and slash, which means, like, chaos and uh, Shion, if you have spell ray set to fast, just obliterate them. Yeah. And if the unicorn revives them, you're not taking damage. So it's just, here's some more free XP in this encounter where you're not going to take any damage. Just for reference, they have exactly as much HP as the minibus we just talked about. So they take forever to kill. But... Both of those encounters later were the enemy you see in the dungeon before the battle is a unicorn, so you know you'll be fighting a unicorn in the battle. Um, they're both right next to the field generating flame and the spark canisters, so you can already make those encounters easier with the field effects if you know what you're doing. Strong assumption. Can I just throw out an irritating little thing that has hit me on every playthrough of this game? I've never quite gotten the timing right on those canisters, and maybe one in three will go off after I get touched by an enemy. Hmm. Same. And especially when there's, like, multiple things to target, like there is in one of the rooms you encounter them in this area. Yeah. The targeting thing is fucked up. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's really fucked. But you can get a decoder in this area, um, and then there's Dribbog, Strybog. I have a feeling Strybog. these are German names that I'm really butchering. That one is Eastern European, I believe. Oh, okay. Do these mean anything, or are they just weird names they picked? They are actually names from lore. Uh, pretty much every Gnosis name is some kind of creature out of lore. Okay. Like Strybog, Ogre, Unicorn, Svarik, Cerberus. Okay, I was going to look that up earlier because they seem very specific, so. Yeah, I think they explicitly name every Gnosis enemy after some creature out of the fears of humans. Okay. It's a nice theme. I like that. Can't wait to fight college loans. <laughs> <laughs> so technically, Shion will do that. The end <laughs> boss of this game is just public speaking. <laughs> Uh, it's just Payrune again, but ice-themed. Uses slow attacks. And uh, same model, different element. And uh, you get Decoder 9, which you should absolutely pick up because you're going to find the segment address for it in like three seconds. 
Yep. Yeah. My strategy through the early half of this dungeon, which is the mostly narrow corridor sections, was to try to avoid every single encounter that I could because I would fail enough times due to lack of maneuverability that I still gained enough XP without actually engaging literally everyone. It worked for me. I definitely fought every dude sometimes multiple times when I accidentally went the right way and then had to backtrack. Yeah, same. But you're on turbo. I'm like level 18 now, by the way. Damn. I think I finished this game at like level 35. Yeah, it's very possible to be incredibly low on the scale in this one, despite the fact that it does go to at least 60 from memory. I think it goes to 99. It's because it's crunchy as hell, right? Yeah. So, like, yeah. you can be low level, but, like, make good calls and be fine. Yeah, that's very true. It's cutscene time. Or as, as the header calls it, finally, no gameplay. <laughs> <laughs> so, reach the center. At the center is this pretty cool-looking half-absorbed Zohar emulator. Uh, your party uh, stands around and comments on it pretty extensively. Cosmos has lost the Elsa on her sensors because everything is gravitationally insane. But last time she sensed it, it was like 200 meters below their location. And Xion just like hopes that wherever they are, everything is fine for them, even though all the non-organic stuff they've seen uh, has been pretty fucked. We cut to Cherenkov's um, misery exodus here. Uh, it's now when we begin to learn about the destruction of Ariadne that happened right before the game began. I'm pretty sure this is the missing planet, correct? Yeah. Yes. This yep. is the one where we see the emulator floating. This is where we reveal what's happening. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Cherenkov and Utik set up an experiment on the emulator, and it went very wrong and obliterated the whole planet. Nude. <laughs> yeah, as what happens when you mess up with your serverless infrastructure. Yep. <sighs> For Cherenkov, it was a test by Margulis. Uh, no matter what, these people are lost. Does that bother you, Cherenkov? No, sir. Good answer. <laughs> are you willing to <laughs> evil evilly? Yes, I will <laughs> evil evilly. But as the flashback closes, we see that he is uh, definitely, his state is degrading because where he would previously see a vision of his wife slash her uh, young clone in the present, like specters are chasing him through physical space now instead of it just being something that happens in his mind. And then we go back to the gameplay where we meet lizard men that are poisonous and Chris Taylor decided to tough it out until the, turns out, was the last battle with the lizard men. Damn. Also, uh, from memory, correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm pretty sure after this cutscene is the second save point in the dungeon. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. The, Correct. All of what we've described is from the first save point where we began this update until this second part. You cannot save without returning to the start of the dungeon until now. Um, wait, I think that there's one outside of the... Oh, this is outside of the mall area. Right. This is yeah. outside of the big, yeah, skyscraper. Oh, my right. God. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, I do find it really funny that all of the lizard men, which are just called lizard men, are in the the most commercial building that we've been in yet. But there are enough lizard men encounters here that it makes sense to set the resist poison skill on all of your party members. This was the first dungeon that I actually played with the item skills mechanics at all, and I am sure glad I did because poison damage in this game is no joke. It will hit whoever's damaged yeah. with poison for 100 plus after they've attacked. So resist poison skill, good idea. 
it ticks after the last uh, enemy is dead also, so you can still die after you win the encounter and have one of your characters not get XP. Yep. I have had, no joke, a party entirely wiped because of that final poison tick before and game over on a victory. Fucking rude. Fucking rude. Yes. That's awesome. That is a thing this system can do. I have been wisely rolling around with everyone having like prevent physical attack, physical defense and ether defense down mm -hmm. pretty generically good. But it's entirely possible that like up to this point, you literally haven't noticed the skills menu or if you right. did notice it, like you didn't know what it did. Yeah, it's not obvious. Like Final Fantasy IX's entire progression system is just chilling in this game is one of the eight progression systems that there are. And I don't even think when you open it the first time, it like tells you what to do or anything. No, nope, no, I don't think there's a skills tutorial unless you go hunting in the glossary. That Final Fantasy IX system is bad. Yeah, Chris, this one is better. This version's better. <sighs> they could have just turned the numbers down a little bit and mm -hmm. made it so you got it right before you got the new weapon and then the game would be much better, like Tactics Advance. Right, yeah. yeah I was gonna say Tactics Advance has a better version of this. Yeah, because the numbers are just slightly tuned lower. Right, so you don't have to grind with, with underleveled equipment to actually get the skill you want. You know how this game was supposed to be like three times as long as it ended up being? I wonder if it was balanced when it was that, and then all these parts were just connected together with cutscenes, and then they never really went back and saw how good the balance was. Because the balance in this area is fucked. It's possible. It's so weird that this game was supposed to be so much longer because it is relatively svelte for a JRPG of this era. But of the three Xenosaga games, I think it's paced the best. I haven't revisited two or three yet, so maybe that opinion will change. Two is like 20 hours long. Three is the best whole package, if you ask me. Okay, two is 20 hours long, but it's 20 hours of nothing garbage time that makes me sad. If you think I'm cruel to this dungeon, we're not at that one. Yeah, I'm not going to defend that one when it comes up. I know it. I haven't started that, um, and I'm really worried from what I'm hearing about it. The new voice actors are very bad, especially Momo's. Yeah, I can't wait to reveal the story of what happened in that one to you guys. Mm. Anyway, our next job is making our way through a half-absorbed skyscraper, blowing up the safeties on the elevator on each floor so we can take it down. Where hilariously stops on a floor that doesn't have safeties and still works. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Basement don't count. I mean, if you destroy the safeties, clearly you just free fall to hell. That's how that works. Try it in a real skyscraper, kids. Yeah, I rode the Tower of Terror. I know what's up. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking about how I rode the Tower of Terror as a euphemism for dying in 9-11. <laughs> damn it. <laughs> much like the actual 9-11 the tower of terror no longer exists and is in fact a guardians of the galaxy monument why do you think we have a light shining into space <laughs> so this takes you through a parking garage a cube farm all the works the upper floors and the cube farm contain two very handy chests incidentally the bottom right cubicle has the magical hat accessory and the top floor has segment address 09, which we can all open because we killed Strybog, right? It's got the robot's left arm. Can you imagine missing the magical hat here given the boss later? I know, right? What does the magical hat do? Prevents you from being like muted effectively. Yeah, it prevents silence, which in this game is called lost, which is uh, metal to me. 
Yeah. So I want to call this out because I feel like the way that this one moment plays with perspective is really good. I don't think that the forced dungeon perspective is great all the time in this game, but here you can only see where the magical hat chest is on the first floor from the third floor balcony where the address number nine is because when you're on the first floor the cubicle walls hide it i love shit like that i love when you get higher in a place and can see something on a lower angle from a different perspective it's good i'm coming off shadow hearts so i just went in all the cubicles and pressed x and got it right away (laughs) (laughs) i will say that it's kind of annoying though because this cube farm area you have to do like literal shuttle runs through it to get the stop on the elevator and then go to the other side and you have to go through a separate cube farm room to do that. And you have to keep doing that every floor you go up and the enemies respawn and they're right in the most convenient path. Yeah, well... They do respawn next to the barrels, which also respawn. Mm-hmm. That's true. I would have been annoyed had I accidentally gone up the left side before I went up the right side, and then I would have had to press the button on the other side, and that would have been obnoxious. That's what I did. But also, those plant fuckos in the cube farms never caught me. Never caught me. <laughs> I was sprinting past them every time, like, bye, bitch. So you know what that means, right? You basically played this cubicle section like the opening of Fahrenheit. <laughs> Oh, yeah. QTE, baby. So we previously called out the dungeon ecology as being good as feeling like a commercial district was swallowed by a planet-sized living organism. Yeah, until you go to the Resident Evil lab under the office. Yes. Uh, However, I also just specifically want to call out some very good, uncanny city life touches. First, the aforementioned giant billboard, which we reference, but we never describe. It's a giant billboard with two goldfish on it that just says why that you can break <laughs> through from behind. Oh and then and then also, I, I really loved the small statue of a burger pirate named Hamburger Hook. Yeah. And you blow him up and then the chest he's holding is magically fine and there's some bullshit inside of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you get, you just fuck up Hamburger Hook and get to your treasure inside. How would you not destroy a pirate for a treasure chest? That makes sense on so many levels. (laughs) That's their whole deal. So uh, also I want to call out that Ariadne in the flashbacks has these like giant smokestacks that are shaped like champagne glasses and jut out out of the water. And there is a cliffside that that makes it clear that you are still in the ruined Ariadne from the flashbacks. I thought that was a very stark and arresting image. All of these, all of these champagne flute towers that's very cool so underneath the offices as someone mentioned is you know a big resident evil style lab uh, which we first enter via a large loop which you can either stealth between the rotation of lizard men or just assault them all to clear the place out or you can alt tab away and they will run the whole way around the circle to attack you i'm like why am i getting into three combats in a row and then there were no enemies left (laughs) (laughs) That is the most Chris Taylor story we've had yet about this dungeon. True. Uh, underneath that, however, is the Waglinde Zohar emulator and Cherenkov, who is now visibly disappearing. I want to mention that elevator is comically large. Oh, my yeah. God. It's so long. It's so tall. It's amazing. Like, you must be miles down. Yeah. Saying it's a Resident Evil elevator is not wrong at all. No, yeah. Probably you could race the MGS3 ladder section down. Uh, probably would be about the same length. Yeah. At the bottom, though, the view down there is really cool, if I remember correctly. Yeah. It's like yeah. 
right outside the the Zohar emulator, and you just like see like the perspective of it is really cool. Mm-hmm. And then it's cutscene time, baby, because this is Xeno Saga. It's so big. Like inside the Wogland, you didn't really get a feel for how big the emulator was mm-hmm. because you didn't have a feel for how big the Woglinde was, but it's fucking enormous. Yeah. So the thing that made it different in there is you were looking at it from a platform that was just about jewel height on it. Here you're beneath it and it's towering over you like the monolith from 2001. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with the Zohar emulator, we also see Cherenkov who is disappearing visibly. Yeah, so I don't feel so good, Mr. Stark kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, uh, there's Cosmos like starts talking about things that Xion didn't program her to talk about. It's a bunch of techno babble garbage. Uh, but Xion like comments on, oh, I didn't put that in your databanks. Uh, and do you get it? Do you get that that she's learning? Like she's alive? Do you do you get it? <laughs> do you understand? Oh, is that what's happening? Yeah. No, that's definitely not. Absolutely not. Trinkoff is in an extremely bad way and he has become very much the the character in a horror movie that's like you're all gonna die in here you're all gonna die in here he's a bond villain also that well no i feel like he the you're all gonna die in here is very much like the gnosis are also going to get you like they got me instead of i'm about to fuck you all up but we'll see also yeah it's both (laughs) i will fuck you up and the gnosis (laughs) will fuck you up because i am now a gnosis uh, this is also where he confesses his sins to the party, that he was involved in the Ariadne incident, but not that he was actually a member of Utic. And then he starts swatting at the ghosts. As everyone watches, beams of light fly into him, and he is crucified in midair. And suddenly, Cosmos and Momo go, oh shit, he's a Gnosis. There's an implication that the souls of the dead on the Ariadne still reside inside Gnosis Ariadne and are somehow connected to the Gnosis as well, because as these purple spirits are flying into him, he believes they are the spirits of the people he has killed. Also, we have seen him injecting neck drugs uh, into himself to quell his violent tendencies, and those neck drugs, do they also stave off being a Gnosis, or does Utic have Gnosis stave-off drugs as well? I wasn't entirely sure about that. So if you know what Gnosis are, which we'll get a little of in a minute, you can intuit how one might help with the other. Oh, that makes sense. It's foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Ziggy then has a totally useless flashback to a frame of something which makes no sense, and he just says, it's the same, just like that day, which extremely helpful. After this... The incident. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Also, we're not stating how completely random this is because you get roughly three frames of a blurred image that is mostly black. And he just goes, it's the same. And she's like, what? I couldn't see that, man. Rewind. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes Xenosaga, very good at foreshadowing. Sometimes extremely clumsy at foreshadowing. I know what that is, and it's still stupid. Uh-huh. <laughs> so after this cutscene, Cherenkov becomes a gargoyle. And we are at the final boss of a dungeon. This boss is a brutal capstone to this brutal dungeon. Fuck this boss. The two times I've tried to play this game before, I both got stuck on bosses. This is where I got stuck the first time. 
because mm-hmm. uh, I ran out of healing items and couldn't even survive a battle to get money. Damn. I hate this boss. Uh, it's like a real difficulty spike. Like, if you're not prepared, you're fucked. Yeah. Um, he has two ads that are Odagogos, uh, and they pepper the field with, like, AoE ether attack that hit, like, not super hard, but there's two of them, and they can attack your whole party. Gargoyle can defense down you and cast lost status, which is like mute. It locks your ether abilities. And the magical hat is like pretty much necessary. You put it on your healer to prevent that. And the real problem with this boss fight is that there's no way to like know who to kill first because normally you would attack the ads, the Odagogas, to get them off the field. But every time you do that, Gargoyle powers up. Uh, so the enemies get fewer turns. And there's fewer all-target attacks, but now he's just kind of concentrating those attacks on one person and hitting them like a truck. He boosts more and more as you kill the Otakogas. And, like, if he gets a crit round, someone's definitely dying almost. I saw him do 500 damage on a good blow. Yeah. Before this boss, you need to be like Oprah with Medica All and just have everyone learn it. Like, you get Medica All and you get Medica All because you can't afford to not be topped up during this entire battle. So, um, it was difficult. It was very difficult for me, but also I used eggs, which don't really heal. So losing turns to healing didn't happen for me. I just had to get to the right turn order RNG that didn't fuck me. Basically, it was why I wiped twice. But honestly, with eggs, it's just a war of attrition. It's doable. This was absolutely zero problem for me because I had um, done all of the eggs upgrades and then I threw a bunch of defense shit on them early and I had not used them this dungeon, so they were at full health. So I just summoned both my eggs, axe chopped the other guy, and then Cosmos also did like 400 damage, as much as the eggs with the axe did via satellite. So then you just kind of nuked him down and he spent most of his turns trying to heal dramatically less than I did in a round. Chris, I'm definitely understanding how you felt during all of Shadow Hearts every time you say that. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime anything is really mechanically crunchy, I will definitely like break it open as hard as possible. All right. Because that's what I derive all the pleasure from. Yeah. And this game has a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will point out by this point, you should have enough tech points to unlock Momo's best skill, Magic Caster. When she is transformed, she can now steal things rare items with a 100% success rate. Do this on every boss from here till the end of the game, baby. This fight will give you the commander's crest, which you can only get from this encounter, and that thing is key to breaking the game. Whoever wears it gets plus one AP a turn, meaning that every two turns, bam, full attack bar, no guard needed. I should equip that. I randomly got it. (laughs) Yeah, it's possible to get two of them if you get lucky after the fight, but... Hell yeah. Yeah. Uh, later on, Xion and Junior both have theft attacks, but for now, Momo is the only person you could have with it unless you grind like mad. Use her for that and healing if you're using my strategy. I hate that this item is missable. It's so necessary. It's not necessary, but it definitely lets you kick the game in the teeth. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things that like is so powerful that the fact that you can miss it is like bad game does full stop. Because if you just don't know it exists, I think there's another item that does something similar later in the game, the red crest or something. But this item basically increases your attack by like one and a half times overall. Like you can do an extra powerful attack every other turn. And it's super necessary. I don't like that it's missable at all. 
I feel like this is just indicating how much there are, if you understand the systems that play different paths to victory here, because I don't see myself needing this item. And so I'm not upset that I don't have it because I have already mapped tech attacks to the to the low setting for all of my characters because I prioritize that. And so they each get a special at four instead of six. Yeah. And and the problem, the reason it's kind of, I guess, not necessary, but really helpful is that battles in this game take so long that an another attack every other turn, especially once you know what weaknesses are and can exploit them, uh, is really helpful at like turning battles from like five minutes long to three minutes long, especially given how long all of the animations are. Yeah, that's true. And so it just maybe like a friction reducer more than anything, but don't miss it. I wish Search Eyes was an ass. Yeah, it, it is very useless. Mm -hmm. well, I do not understand the point of having it over analyze when it could just be you push an extra button to pull up the analyze information and then it would be useful and I would keep it equipped. Uh, I must say one of my favorite things that a generation later JRPGs would start doing is just giving you a button to pull up bestiary information in battle that you've yeah. learned. I don't care if I have to hit them multiple times or trigger the thing to learn it. I like that that's just a thing I can check in battle for my strategy now. Yeah. Okay, but what if it also talked to you with Teddy's voice when you did it? Uh, I can get that without being irritated because SMT4 and Strange Journey Redux exist and I get a <laughs> cool cyber navigator. And then get out your whack and stick because it's uh, time to get bopped on the head with subtext that's uh, really just more like text. kill the boss and we get another cutscene shocking everyone <laughs> Shion gets a shared vision she, well what really happens is Shion does the Requiem and Pache from Assassin's yeah, Creed yeah. yeah. and <laughs> so we get the 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 weird Assassin's Creed vision of Margulis instructing Cherenkov and in how nobody on Ariadne was really a person anymore nor were most individuals they had no drive to create, only consume, and that means they weren't really human. <laughs> what is this trying to say? It's definitely trying to say something, right? I think so, yeah, because, all right, so Margulis is simultaneously libertarian and authoritarian somehow. Uh, it, what do you mean somehow? That's most libertarians. <laughs> yeah. That's what they are, motherfucker! Okay, fair. Libertarians hate the cops because they have the army underneath their all-powerful daddy. <laughs> right. Specifically, the libertarian view is don't tread on me, fuck my neighbor. <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking about left libertarians, not right libertarians, like the whole libertarian, authoritarian, left-right grid. I wasn't thinking of capital L libertarians. Apologies. Um, he is a true Catholic Randian. 
He calls the citizens of Ariadne sacks of meat and bone and then says that the sheeple of the universe are what drove mankind away from its original homeland and that human consciousness must be reawakened for the sake of humanity and our God. So I feel like what this scene is doing isn't necessarily commenting on the philosophy of the game so much as commenting on the philosophy of Margulis, which is genocide will wake daddy. Yeah, but Margulis is supposed to be like one half of a dyad, kind of. Like, he's supposed to be like the extreme end of this, like, life only exists for, like, struggle and hardship. And it's like a very Nietzschean kind of way of looking at things. Margulis is that Dr. Manhattan meme. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Shion realizes she felt happiness from something and it clicks that she's reliving Cherenkov's memories in some kind of link with him. Eventually, they appear on a magic exposition beach. And so we get the last piece of Cherenkov's past. He, too, was a victim of the Life Recycling Act, which we mentioned a little earlier, is a piece of legislation that is so immensely fucked every time it comes up. How did this get passed? Like, who approved this? It's, like, so cartoonishly evil. Mm. Oh, come on, dude. (laughs) As a person alive in the world today, I don't know how I could be surprised that something so awful would become law. This is even beyond anything that is. This is like so unimaginative in the way that it's fucked up. It's just like, what if we took the human but made it not a human anymore? And I get that it's trying to show like Ariande has become like cruel and uncaring and like inhumane, but. Just creating a piece of legislation called the Life Recycling Act that turns people into androids or, like, zombies seems a little on the nose. Well, it's just like sci-fi prison labor, really. Yeah. 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 I guess. You have to realize the full backstory of the LRA is humanity was in such decline. Worlds were being destroyed by the Gnosis. We were so shorthanded that... Basically, everyone took all the limiters off so we could rebuild population in a skirmish that was cutting us down en masse. So we made androids out of the dead. We made designer humans of all stripes, which is what one of Cherenkov's things is. And some of the crew that Junior travels around with are from that same thing. And after we got back on our feet, keep in mind, this was hundreds of years of this given Ziggy, eventually one of the three megacorps that runs the galaxy decides, all right, now you can have rights again. Where is this established? Is this in like some book somewhere? This is partially established in the glossary, partially established in Pied Piper, which is Ziggy's backstory. And this is weaved a little more naturally into the DS one and two port. Okay, I was playing this game. I was just like, this is kind of dumb. Um, But maybe it does make sense. That seems like it should be saying something, but I don't know what it's trying to say. I mean, I feel like it's just allegory for the ways that uh, resource-strapped liberal societies will create extremely inhumane laws to keep an underclass that that works for them in perpetuity. I mean, (laughs) it's... uh... yeah. Yeah, we used the bodies of the dead until we had enough realians that we could just start burying people. Right. And again, reminder, this is a cyberpunk dystopia that this whole thing takes place in. There is literally just 
three corporations running everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Syndicate, not Star Trek. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Cherenkov was not recycled from an actual corpse. He was created from picking and choosing designer genes from the dead to breed perfect soldiers for war. The worst Boba Fett. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Solid snake, but make it space opera. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is... He survived the war, and then he had nothing but killing in his DNA, and there was no outreach for people to deal with him. He was just expected to, you know, get back into society and do things, and, oh, it's a metaphor, I get it now. (laughs) So he turns to Margulis because after probably a decade or so of life, we're not really clear on how long it is, I don't think we get exact dates on his past, But Margulis is literally the only person to tell him there is a place for you and there is a use for you after the war. And now on that white beach of nothingness, he tells Shion that he feels peace because he has no world to interact with. He just is. And someday he won't even be that. And he's okay with that. Hell yeah. Mood. I rolled my eyes really hard at this cutscene. I don't like the writing here. I fucking love it. He says, like, the world didn't reject me. I rejected the world but I'm not sure that that's actually true. I feel like the world, in fact, did reject him. And so it just seems like this is like some dumb Nietzsche and bullshit about like how all suffering comes from within. You do know that this game's named after some Nietzsche shit, right? (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) I, I think Nietzsche is profoundly stupid, and this is like a dumb anime retelling of Nietzsche. I don't think it works very well. I think that the theme that... Cherenkov is trying to communicate that he plays in the story is this idea that like suffering and like meaning are constructed through our actions. And I just don't believe that that's actually true in this case. I think that they picked a bad allegory for this message. So I disagree with that. The text has some of what you're talking about, but the text is also from the perspective of Cherenkov, who is extremely damaged goods, and then also Margulis, who is extremely evil. And, like, I do think that there is some good material here that, you know, it's a tired theme, but also a salient one of, you know, abandonment and trauma recreate cycles of abandonment and trauma. Well, you can both be correct. Yeah. Because I am 100% sure that this game is written from that mean-spirited Nietzschean perspective and poorly from that angle, might I add. But you can also bring a humanist reading to it because of the way they flub the attempt at Nietzscheanism. So what this brings us back to the thing we talked about before, like what is the cause of his violent tendencies in this case? Like why did he do the things that brought him to court in the first place? And the game doesn't really have a good response to it. The game's response to it is genetics. Yeah. Right. Which is so fucked up. It's unbelievably fucked up. Um, And so, like, it's this weird, like, Nietzschean eugenicism in a weird way, Mm. Uh, like a biological determinism of violence, uh, that humans are inherently violent, and that even if we try to fix them, some of us are just fucked. I highly disagree with that, Reed, because Cherenkov shows through everything we see of him that he only gets violent when he's pushed into a corner, overtly rejected. Like, he goes the entirety of his marriage with lawyer wife perfectly fine. He goes living until he runs into the clone who spits in his face perfectly fine. It's the fact that 
when society turns on him, he goes John Rambo is the issue, but it's because society turns on him. My dude holds back as a trained soldier from wrecking a bunch of dudes until his life is in brutal danger right. on the dock colony. And the whole thing is supposed to be he wants to be a better man, but he is constantly cornered and forced into the only thing he knows. But then his statement in this cutscene is incoherent. Like, it doesn't make sense then. And it also doesn't explain how he got set down the path where he was like, like, what you're describing with his lawyer wife was after he was reconditioned. So the question of, like, the originary violence or the violent impulse that caused him to be in that situation to begin with is just unanalyzed. But it's trying to make a comment about it. Maybe Fletcher, like, has something to say. But there's there's no evidence as to what his original crime was we know he did something violent we know he got level seven reconditioning and that's that's basically where we pick up his story after he was a milchian conflict survivor so you can read it into maybe he was just an uncontrolled beast at some point you can maybe say something pushed him before this that we never saw it's kind of hard to take but the the whole thing is, I would say two things about this. Cherenkov is Shinji from Evangelion. Mm. And the only thing that prevents him from being a modern Jordan Peterson incel type is the fact that there's no sexual desire to him. It's just he wants something. He wants to be told what to do. He was designed to be a soldier, and then they told him there's no more wars, buddy. And nobody ever came up with something to do after that. So he just kind of drifts. Yeah, it's like personality reconditioning cannot erase his PTSD because society keeps re-aggravating that PTSD over and over and over and over again. I think that there is some power in that, at least for me. I guess my, my major problem then is that this is supposed to be like the climax of his like realization of like why he's this way in a sense. And if that's the case, then his realization is just wrong. Like the, the text of the game around that realization does not support his conclusion that it's his fault he's this way. Okay, but with all the tools and life experiences he's had, what makes you think that in his death, he would become enlightened and reach Zen and not just go, this is my fault, but I'm done with it now, and I'm okay with that. He's on a metaphorical beach of enlightenment. There's a whitewash filter over the entire screen, and this is supposed to represent, like, heaven or some shit. Mm, no, it's void ideation. It's not enlightenment. It's nothing. Yeah. It's, it will, so, I mean, it's nirvana in, in one way of looking at it, but it's a very bleak, bleak nirvana. And we know conclusively he says things in this scene that are just wrong. Yeah. But we have no reason to believe that he's wrong about himself. Like, we know that he says things wrong about the world outside of himself. But this realization he has, the only evidence that it's wrong is everything before it. No one ever circles around and was like, oh, that was, like, incorrect. Like, actually, it's the world's fault that he's this way. It's not his fault. And so it's just kind of left. I think the fact that the very last things he says are, Shion, this will happen to you too. And we conclusively know that's wrong. It's supposed to be your hint that 
No, he is not enlightened. He is not one with the universe. He's just making things up as he dies. Yeah, I feel like what this whole sequence does for me, which I really like, I, I actually wrote down in my own notes while we were doing this, like, this is so good. I love this so much. At probably the exact same scenes that you were saying, oh, God, this is so obnoxious. And it's just... It's funny because we have very similar opinions on the dungeon itself and very opposite opinions yeah. <laughs> on the story afterwards. But I feel like what this scene does is it explains his violence a little bit without excusing it because he just keeps getting reprogrammed over and over and over again. And so he is very uh, pitiable while also still showing that he is a destructive piece of shit when pushed into that zone again and again and again. I will mea culpa a little bit in the sense that like we are not really told what all these levels of personality reconditioning actually are or like we kind of know what they do but we don't know like their limitations or anything about them so this techno babble is actively inhibiting our ability to like comment on what this is saying because we aren't told enough about what actually happened to him to understand why he did what he did so the other thing i'll throw out is recall when i'm talking about how all these soldiers came back from the war and no one had any support or help from them, that a few updates ago, a major cutscene with one of the ruling bodies of the Federation had a guy talking about, why the fuck do we need psychologists? We've got drugs now. And that's his entire arc. Right. It's, we can just recondition this dude until it works. Why treat the problem if we have a cure? They don't have a cure, though. And I feel like this is where, for me, the whole playing this game before having seen any anime versus playing this game after having seen a bunch of anime, there are enough special boy war trauma stories like Shinji, like Kiriko from Vadams, in the general space that Xenosaga is playing with that I was able to fill in the blanks and go, oh, he was forced to be violent. He was built to be violent. And then as he tried to reject that, it kept getting exacerbated over and over and over and over again because the system is fucked. Like, I feel like it was context clues from having absorbed other stories in the mech space opera modes. I do think it is a failing of the game that you can read it that way. Because while I personally also read it the same way that you do, Ryan, like... I still think that they were really going for like that cruel, like sort of nihilism, mm. but flubbed it, which is what creates that space for other more humanist interpretation. That's exactly because I agree. Like, I think that the trauma reading of this is like pretty indisputable. The problem becomes that it's trying to like, like when it tries to generalize or make that point into something that applies more broadly. It's trying to do two things at once. It's trying to like make a comment on uh, existence and humanity and a comment on society, but it never like squares that circle very well. So it explains like how individuals exist in society and how society can enact trauma on people, but it doesn't explain like how humans work very well when it's clearly trying to like make a comment on like the fundamental nature of humanity this entire mm. game is existentialist it's not like a political commentary directly mm -hmm. it just kind of indirectly gets to political commentary from its existential conclusions but it doesn't connect those very well and i think that this is like a prime example of those two things not meeting in the middle and there being this gap where you can't tell how they're supposed to fit together yeah i'll give you that that carries some weight for me too
So we return to reality where Xion has collapsed to her knees as the gargoyle dissolves into light. Momo clearly does not understand what just happened here. Xion is begging Chaos to tell her that we didn't just murder a man, right? Right? To be fair to Xion, no one else got the really intense life flashback of the extremely traumatized and broken man we just killed. She just got a main line of intense emotions and memories that would fuck me up too. I will point out that Chaos clearly got more of that than anyone else because he does give a half-hearted response to her that's like, well... Yeah, Chaos is also this weird pure empathy machine in a lot of ways, so that makes a lot of sense to me. And then Cathedral Ship, the nosified form of the doomed planet Ariadne, begins to dissipate. Our crew start floating as gravity leaves them just in time to get saved by the now mobile Elsa. Yep, that was a load-bearing pause. <laughs> yup. Um, and now we have my favorite cutscene of this section where the rest of the Gnosis fleet is intact and things look bad, but hey, Junior's arrived in the Durandal uh, and huge giant space battle, lasers flying everywhere, trying to escape. Um, and the numbers of are just too mismatched even for the Durandal. Um, so there's some really great techno babble, some really cool cinematography in this part. And while that's happening, Cosmos just kind of leaves uh, and no one notices it, but they do notice when the hatch opens and Cosmos leaves into the vacuum of space. Xion is screaming for her to get back inside. And Cosmos now has blue eyes, as we see, but the party doesn't. She's turned away from the camera. Oh, is she? Yeah, she's turned away from the monitor as everyone screams at her. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, did she hear them even? Like, why are they screaming? <laughs> We don't know if she can hear them. They definitely can't hear her. Right. And she says, Xion, will feeling pain make me complete? Nietzsche, bitch. <laughs> so specifically for maybe some of the listeners who, who don't know Nietzsche, bitch, uh, Nietzsche does <laughs> have a lot to say about suffering. He believes it is the key to finding meaning in life. And that is part of why Nietzsche rails against organized religion, because it seeks to abolish suffering. It's like Buddhism, but make it cocaine. <laughs> I will throw this out there. Maybe if you're the kind of person who thinks that art requires suffering, ask yourself where you picked that up from, because it's very possible to be well-adjusted and still creative. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Just a thing I want to throw out. Nietzscheism is the perfect game, is like the perfect philosophy of 16-year-olds. But if you still yeah. believe it after, you, after you're like 20, you're a fucking psycho. Because really, the appeal of it is why is the world bad and coming to an understanding of that that requires nothing from you exactly it just tells you like do whatever you want to do but also if things are bad actually it's making you better you are ubermensch so i really appreciated reading nietzsche primarily because so much of mid-20th century philosophy is then in response to nietzsche and so learning his actual words and figuring out his whole deal makes a lot of latter 20th century philosophy make a lot more sense because a lot of it is people just kind of saying what the fuck to him. Yeah. You know how much I thought you were about to say I was looking at Nisha's own words and deeds. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And, and I think Nietzsche and anime make like a strangely good pairing, I will say. Mm. 
I think that the themes of this game are kind of stupid, but it does work kind of when it knows what it's saying. So I'll give it that. I will say this. The giant robot space works a lot in themes of this, but the best series are the ones that analyze that and maybe try to debunk it. Mm -hmm. Most of your Gundams, your Evangelion, there's a few others, but we we could just stick with the big names. They're the ones that will go, okay, but maybe there's an inhumanity that doesn't need to be in this system. Well, the reason it works in anime is that anime is targeted at loner individuals who feel victimized by the world because they have chosen not to be a part of it. Yeah. Some of it. There's definitely series I could point at which offer a scathing rebuke of that. Pretty Cure, for instance. No, I was just specifically responding to Michael's point, not yours. Got it. Anime and Nisha being good bedfellows. And it's almost purely due to target demographics, I think. I yeah, I literally read Nietzsche in high school. So that makes sense. That fits during my peak anime phase. Philosophy minor. Philosophy major. <laughs> Philosophy liker. <laughs> Philosophy is dumb and bad. Just be nice to people. You've solved it. You figured it out. I did it. <laughs> That's the most engineer brain way to confront this I've ever heard, Chris. Good job. What? Call up Mr. Philosophy. He's canceled. <laughs> uh literally every mr philosophy is canceled let's be honest yeah absolutely i don't know is ayn rand canceled she had some good ideas (laughs) fuck off (laughs) fucking canceled as fuck holy shit (laughs) i'm not taking that bait chris i know you too well (laughs) you mean Uh, we know you too well (laughs) what does that mean oh anthem one of her books about how we don't use singular pronouns anymore because oh, communism. Like, like I read Anthem. Anthem is for casuals. Real ones read The Fountainhead. Ugh. Real ones read Terry Goodkind because it's the updated edition. <laughs> he died of the Rona. I am so happy. Um, On board the Durandal, something is hacking their mainframe to connect it to the Zohar emulators on board. Neither Shelly nor the Realians could stop it. Atop the Elsa, Cosmos fires the uh, Ideon's nutting in space moves you backwards cannon, <laughs> obliterating every single Gnosis in front of the ship. I have a minor nitpick about this. Shion says she absorbs them. I really suspect this is a weird translation. Since she gets this ability as an attack later, it will never be said to absorb things again. It murders things as a cannon. I don't know why this line's here. In the cutscene, it does. You can see the, like the black particles going in um, when you have everything cranked up super high on your emulator settings. You can see them like getting sucked in. All right. Maybe it's just the TV I had it on. It's really weird because this will just turn into a laser later. Full stop. Yeah, cool one. Lasers are pretty cool. Hot take. Elsewhere in the galaxy, Margulis is very unhappy at being told that Cherenkov's tracking beacon has vanished. I don't know that I'd say he's very unhappy. He shows one of the only bits of emotion, which is he just scowls but says nothing. I would argue that's very unhappy for Margulis. (laughs) Yeah, the whole crew on the deck are reacting to it because this is usually their unflappable commander. And finally, Junior brings the Elsa crew aboard, seeing as how he is their boss. Uh, He also snags the floating Zohar emulator, completing the whole set. Shion hears that the foundation the Elsa crew work for is actually the Kukai Foundation, as in, and this is a direct quote, 
the Kukai Cat Foundation from the Galactic Finance 500's <laughs> top 10 fastest growing corporations list, <laughs> cementing that Xi'an is a fucking psycho. Oh my god. Uh, that, that line sounded so focus group. They're like, how much information can we fit into this one fucking sentence? I do hate that sentence to the point that I put it in the notes. It's I know. Terrible, yeah. so, no, it's, it's, it's really bad. That too. Yeah. Not even an industry mag. Xi'an is the person who reads more than the first four pages of the Wall Street Journal and <laughs> loves it. Yeah. No, not only loves it, fucking memorizes it. Xi'an would be writing Bari Weiss editorials. Let's be honest. <laughs> oh, yeah. Xi'an would be writing for like Jacobin or something like that if she were in our current universe. No, she wouldn't. Uh, I feel like she would. I would say she is way more sucklib than a Jacobin oh, writer. Yeah. You're right, WAPO. Yeah. Yeah. The Atlantic articles is honestly what Xi'an would be uh -huh. up to. Those mm. 10,000 word articles that are mostly based off of one shock antidote. She would be one of those people <laughs> on Twitter who just responds to like Trump and all those people and tries to own them via Twitter. Oh, a, a Crescent's team? Yes. <laughs> except, except I. This is the bummer for me is that her her ID poll is on point because she's one of the only people who doesn't think that like realian rights and android rights are a weird thing. I know that there was a, you know, realian uprising massacre that happened a few years ago and all that, but like she's one of the only people who isn't just grossed out and and tries to dehumanize realians at every turn. So it bums me out that she is such a shit lib. Counterpoint. <laughs> Literally everyone in our party feels that way, and not all of them are Xion. Yeah. yeah, but they don't talk about it like she does. Junior very much does. He's got a whole ship crewed by Reali and saved three people. Yeah. Yeah. Junior right. should have been the, the main character of this game instead of Xion, like it was kind of originally supposed to be. Good news. Game two is all Junior. <sighs> but uh, I don't even like Junior that much. He's just better <laughs> than Xion. <laughs> Xion is just like a typical STEM office worker libertarian is really what her deal is. Yeah, I guess. Like a Google employee. People should be people, but also isn't business and technology incredible, completely disregarding all of the implications of it. Mm -hmm. She's like yeah. one of those Facebook employees who's like, it's not great that we're helping genocides around the world, but if I leave, then who will be the good one? You're explicitly correct about that on so many levels oh, yeah. I, know. I can't say right now. Oh, yeah. No, that that read makes so much sense. That's a good read. I'm just thinking of three right now. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, everyone jokes about throwing Alan out the airlock as the Durandal sets course for the Kukai Foundation to repair and reload. We see the back end of the white-haired man's mecha behind us as the party gate jumps away. We're offered a chance to save, and we do so. And that is the end of this episode, which is somehow surprisingly long, given what was covered. Dungeon's really long, so... So all of next week is going to be no dungeon. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's everything up to the next dungeon, which is just dense. Okay. Wrapping it up, does anyone have any closing thoughts on this episode? I'm still mad about Cathedral Ship. I'm glad that it's done with. Everything else is so sweet compared to this and this game. It's too long. It's too hard. The cutscenes are kind of dumb, but it's fine. I liked this sequence a lot more than I remembered. And also, I enjoyed this 
lively and spicy discussion this episode. Those are my closing thoughts. I think that's a good way to put it. This was a very good recording session about a very bad dungeon, if you ask me. <laughs> Do you guys have any commercials you want to share with the listeners? Uh, support Urban Debate, urbandebate.org. They've been working to do online tournaments during the current world event uh and they're they're really hurting for money so urbandebate.org any donation counts you can even take donations of time really useful i also take donations which you can find out by going to my website hellscaper.com and seeing all of my myriad works look upon them and despair despair is how i feel when i look at your CSS. <laughs> it's true <laughs> <laughs> You can listen to my music at soundcloud.com slash catastrophizer and listen to my band at canonanddeveron.bandcamp.com. Links for all of these will be in the description. And you can listen to Ryan and I's um, new podcast, The Lightning Strikes Thrice Extreme, by visiting our Patreon at tentacle.pro and kicking in as little as a buck a month. It is this podcast but about Final Fantasy XIV, the MMO. That's all until next time when we'll be talking about the extended series of cutscenes on the way to the Kukai Foundation. Goodbye. Ta-da! Like I said up top, Thanks for being a patron. Your continued patronage helps making these shows not be a financial burden without having to put ads in them. Since you're already a patron, you can help us out by reviewing your favorite shows on the podcatcher of your choice, telling a friend about our podcasts, or sharing an episode on social media. In case you didn't know, we have lots of podcasts. We have Being Jim Davis, a daily chronological Garfield comic strip recap podcast. Lightning Strikes Thrice, a JRPG Game Club podcast, Magmar Sucks, a show where we stack rank Pokemon based on how interesting their lore is, and last but not least, Boku No Stop, a podcast about anime and low-effort jokes. Thanks for being a loyal listener. We'll see you next time.